I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Today we continue in our series that we're calling Supremacy. Over the last number of weeks we've been going through Colossians together, learning about God, learning about his son Jesus and how he is supreme in all things. And today I want to get right into our text. So turn with me, it's on page 984 of that pew Bible in front of you. And we're picking up in the middle of an idea that the Apostle Paul has given us, and we'll flesh that out for you in just a moment. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5, are you there? Yes? Yes. This is what he says. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, weakness, excuse me, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Heavenly Father, would you bless the reading and preaching of your word, challenging and refining us as we explore it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a type of person I want to be. It's not the type of person that the world might expect me to desire, but nevertheless, the person that I want to be is directly related to the person that I'm most deeply connected to. And this drives the changes that I make in my life. As you know, one of the biggest complaints against Christianity or one of the biggest misconceptions of Christianity is that this is a religion of rules. I talk to people about my faith with some regularity. And I regularly get the complaint that says this is just a series of rules. And that's a deal breaker for me. I don't want to be part of something that is all about rules. And I get it. I mean, I'm not necessarily enjoying a lot of do's and don'ts either. And so today, when you come to a passage like Colossians chapter 3, and we read this long list of what might be conceived as do's and don'ts, I'm very conscious of the fact that some of you have come in here, and maybe even here for the first time, maybe a friend brought you because you're going to Fall Fest after, and... You came into church and said, oh, wow, look at this nice big church. And you met a couple of people and you had some good coffee and common grounds. 
You dropped your kids off and you said, man, this children's ministry, they seem, they seem like they got this together. I think I might like this place. Maybe you like the music. As Pastor Chris was leading us, I certainly do. And, and as you were singing, you're really starting to, I think you're getting a glimpse of Old North. And then you hear the pastor stand up and he reads a list of do's and don'ts. And it occurs to you, Old North Church isn't just Old North Church. Actually, historically, it's Old North Baptist Church. And isn't that just, isn't that what Baptists do? They rope you in with all these things that they do well, and then just when you suspect it the least, bam, they drop the rules on you. I mean, that is like the Baptist way, isn't it? But you need to know that this morning, this text and what we're going to talk about is not just talking about rules. Because we're talking really about, and if you've been here for any number of weeks, you know the larger context of what we're exploring. We're talking about a changed life. And there's a big difference between behavior modification, do's and don'ts, and a gospel living that comes when you're in relationship with God. And this morning, we seek to grow in a specific way of life because there's a type of person that I want to be and I think that many of you want to be. And it's directly related to the person that I'm most deeply connected to. His name is Jesus. And so as I read Colossians chapter 3, particularly these lists, one observation for us right from the beginning. We see in Colossians 3 that you are able to change. I don't know where you are today or what you're struggling with, but you are able to change. And in fact, you're expected to actively participate in the change that God is doing in your life. We see a variety uh, of commands here in this text that lead us toward a changed life. And as we've talked about, when you put your faith in Christ, he unites himself to you, and God does this wonderful transforming work in you. The old self that you were dies. You're born again with a new self, united to Jesus. And God does this transformation in you. It's long, it's slow, it's over the course of the rest of your days, in which he makes you more and more into the likeness of his son. He grows you in what we call holiness. And even though he starts the work, and he finishes the work, we see here that you are expected to participate in the life change that God is working in you. And we see that in a number of ways in this passage. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, these things. Verse 8, but now you must put away all of these things and... Verse 12, put on these things. These are commands in which we are to participate in the life change of God. And so, you might recall that we've asked the question last week, if you were here, in earlier in chapter 3. Said we saw that your life with God, if you put your faith in Christ, if you believe the gospel, 
and have your sins forgiven. Now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we see this discrepancy between the reality of what the world sees and the reality of who the Christian is. He, is, uh, he or she is a citizen of heaven making their way through earth. And as a result, they're called to set their minds on the things that are above, not get mired down in the depths of, of some of these things on earth. And so the question is, if my life is hidden with Christ in God, if I'm a citizen of heaven who's making his way through earth, how, how, how? Do I set my mind on things that are above? How do I navigate the spiritual and physical reality? And here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us, I think, three ways to live in a manner that is consistent with our new life and with our new citizenship. So look with me. The first way that we live in this Consistency is found in verses 5 through 7. And we might summarize it by saying, put to death sexual sins. Now the idea of putting something to death is pretty severe, isn't it? I mean, he is not saying, don't do this anymore. <laughs> He's not saying, put it in the closet and hopefully it won't come back out. He is saying, with lethal determination, eliminate these things. Why? Because these particular types of sins are incredibly powerful, and the consequences for them are most severe. In one sense, he's saying, kill these sins before they kill you. <laughs> and he gives us a list in verses 5, of six, five and 6 of what he's talking about. And as you look at the list, we see that they're pretty much all in the realm of sexual desire or sexual activity. Let me describe some of them for you. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality here, the word is porneia. This is the word in which we derive the term pornography. Typically, Sexual immorality in this sense in the Bible refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage, but it can refer to any kind of sexual sin. It says put to death impurity. This refers to moral corruption or uncleanliness, often alongside of sexual immorality. Put to death passion, lustful passion, strong feelings or strong emotions. For these things. He says, put to death evil desire, verse 5. When we talk about evil desire, I think the way that we could describe this is sort of self-indulgent craving. Perhaps it's the idea of ruminating on an idea, tossing it around in your mind until it eventually leads you he says put to death covetousness which might also be called greed and it is referred to as idolatry so let's be clear we're 
lethal determination to eliminate these things from our life because they're part of the old self before we came to faith in Christ. And what he's saying is that any sexual activity outside of marriage, even sexual lust and the desire to, to indulge in sexual sin, needs to be put to death. Now, let's be real. This is incredibly difficult in a hyper hyper-sexualized society like we live in right now. You cannot open your computer screen without an image coming from somewhere tempting you toward a link in some direction. If you turn on your TV, even today, you're watching the football game, and you will see images that are sexualized images that are leading you down some of these paths. The idea of cultural morality with regard to sex has changed so rapidly, even just in my lifetime, never mind the last 50 or 100 years. And the message of the sexual ethic that is being portrayed today is very simply this. Your life, you will be fulfilled in your life if and only if you have sexual excitement from a young age to a very old age. And if you lack that, then somehow you're missing out. And so you see targeted ads to teenagers and targeted ads to senior citizens and everywhere in between along the lines of this new sexual ethic. And that cultural dynamic taking something that God has made that's beautiful, that's incredible, that's glorifying to him in sex, and turning it into something pervasive and distorted, that makes it incredibly difficult to put to death some of these things. So let me comment on just two of them. Because I think these two are particularly difficult for people in our age. And they are passion and what the text says, evil desire. Starting with passion. Passion, we defined a moment ago as, as even lustful passion, the desire for excitement, emotional excitement that comes along with these things. And... As a pastor, you can imagine I meet a lot of people, and over the years I've counseled a lot of people on the precipice of divorce, and a lack of passion in their marriage, and a desire for passion, a strong desire for passion, uh, is a reoccurring theme for people on the precipice of divorce. And so the fact that it's mentioned here makes us sort of perk up a little bit and say, well, I better pay attention to this. And it leads me to a couple of observations, or a couple of simple but sharp reminders. Reminder number one is foster the right kind of passion in your marriage. It's hard the longer you're married. It's hard when you have kids. Amy and I have been married for 14 years, and it's hard to foster this type of passion. But nevertheless, it's important. On the flip side of that, Reminder number two, that any type of passion, sexually speaking, outside of marriage is the wrong type of passion. 
he says to eliminate it. But we have this dynamic today where many people think that it's just okay to pursue relationships in the name of passion. And many do. But it's not okay. Passion is not some higher plane of existence in which there's the passionate ones out there and then the rest of you who are really boring. That's what we're being taught to believe again and again and again, but that's not reality. Passion outside the bounds of marriage in the sexual sense is all the wrong type of passion. And he says, this is no excuse for reverting back to your old ways, the ways you used to live before you know Christ. And the fact that you can put passion to death implies you can control it. I hear the excuse all the time in which people say, well, I'm just so passionate, or it was such a passionate moment, or whatever. No, you can control it. There's no excuse in saying passion ruled me in this type of way. So don't sin in the name of passion. Secondly, evil desire. Evil desire, as I defined it a moment ago, is sort of the self-indulgent craving, perhaps ruminating on an idea, allowing it to lead you down the path towards sin. As many of you know, we have three little kids running around my house these days. Alexa is three and a half. Noelle is two, and Karsten is five months. And we are insane. <laughs> the two little girls have recently realized uh, the joys of jumping on the couch. They take the cushions off the couch, and then they climb up on and they jump. And I guess they figured out that if, if their feet are in contact with the springs, they get more bounce. And so that's why they get rid of the cushions and they climb up on there. And they laugh and they get scolded and they laugh. And <laughs> Last night after dinner, Alexa took the cushions off the couch because she wanted to make a little house over in the corner with the couch cushions. And so she did that. There's three cushions, one at a time, brought them over to the corner. Noelle, the two-year-old, saw her opportunity. And so she climbed up on the couch and looked back to the kitchen. And Amy says to her, Noelle, remember, no jumping on the couch. And there is the pause. She's smiling just like that, and she's leaning on the back of the couch, and she's staring at her mom, and you can see her little devious mind working <laughs> for 45 seconds, and then she starts to do this, sway <laughs> back and forth. And before you know it, the swaying turned into a little bit of a a bit of bending the knees. Whole time looking at mom with that smile. <laughs> and just as the bend of the knees got to the point where she was just about to break out into a full-on jump, I stepped in and I said, Noelle, you need to obey your mother. And she looked at me and she smiled and she climbed off the couch. And as I observed 
what was happening in her little mind, it occurred to me. This is exactly how evil desires work, even in the realm of sexuality. You allow them to dwell inside your mind. You linger in that place a little too long. And the seed of desire begins to grow. And what starts out as a meaningless click now becomes an engagement in pornography. What starts out as curious inquiry now becomes, as we saw this summer, millions of people on a website called AshleyMadison.com, a website that claims to have 30-some million users, all with the desire to engage in extramarital affairs. Evil desire, rowing, ruminating, and leading us down the road towards sin. But Paul says in verse 7, these, these are things that you used to do. These are characteristics of the way you used to live. And the point is this, if you're a Christian, you're now united to Christ and a citizen of heaven, and therefore let your actions reflect your new life and your new citizenship. Don't go back to the ways you used to live. Move forward into a new way of life. He moves on in verses 8 through 11, and he gives us a second set or a second set of ideas that are consistent with this new life and this new citizenship. And we might summarize it this way. Verses 8 to 11, turn away from relational sins. The first set of sins, sexual in nature, this set seems to be focused more on relationships. And he gives us another list. This is what he says. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, and malice. These three are listed together in a grouping, and they sort of communicate an ill will or an angry disposition toward another person. And this often leads us to the next set of three, which are very verbal in their nature. Slander, obscene talk, and finally, do not lie to each other which might be a summary of the speech altogether. We've seen in the scriptures, Jesus reminds us what comes out of the mouth is an indicator of what is really in our heart. So it's not surprising that if we are people who are defined by anger, then that anger would come out in slander or obscene talk or in deception. Paul says this is a type of interaction that used to define your relationships, but now, as verse 10 says, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of the creator. To be renewed very simply means to be brought back to a standard or a status that is like new, to be improved upon or reestablished with one another. All of us used to function in the old way, but when you have your faith in Jesus, a true and genuine life change occurs and this has communal implications for our relationships. And so he says, put off sexual sin, put off these types of relational sins. And then he says in verse 12, put on something. Put on a different way of relating 
to those around you. Look with me at verse 12. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These are the types of affectionate terms, descriptions of people who are part of God's family. They're dressed differently than they used to be. They're like me. They're like you. They're real rags to riches type of story. We were in the rags of sinfulness, and now we're in the riches of righteousness, all because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And as such, we are to treat people around us differently. He says, put on compassionate hearts. Sort of having depths of mercy when you look to the people around you. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Humility is a Christian virtue that's listed in the Bible in a number of places, but it's often viewed negatively in the ancient world and in our world because humble people are servants. Humble people are poor. Humble people are cowards. In the world's eyes, But according to God, humble people are his children. He says, put on meekness, which we might also call gentleness. This is the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself or having a high sense of self-importance. Now, putting on meekness, even desiring meekness or gentleness is challenging to us today because almost all of the people that are presented to us that we should look up to are type A personalities. They're the ones that make it on TV. And a number of them are very self-promoting in nature. Those are the people that are brought to us as the ones that we should follow, the ones that we should want to be like. And yet, Paul says, put on the opposite of that. Whenever I think of gentleness or meekness, I always think of my friend Doug. You'll probably hear me mention him a number of times. Doug is a very, he, he, he's, he embodies gentleness and meekness, but not weakness. And that's important. Because the world will tell you if you're meek, you're weak. Doug is a medical doctor. He's highly educated. He knows the Bible way better than I do and way better than probably most of us do. He's stable, he's strong, he has four now adult children. He's an active servant of the Lord, and he is a picture of a gentle, quiet, soft-spoken, meek man. And it's godly. Paul says, bear with one another. Exercise patience in your relationships. Put patience on. It's hard to be patient in an instant gratification society, but beyond that, it's really hard to be patient with other people. The idea of bearing with one another is the idea that you are committed to the people around you, that your relationships are not just a brush-by relationship, but you actually have true commitment to each other. And that commitment extends so far that when you're frustrated, when you're hurt, when you're ready to walk away, even then, even then, you stick it out. And then he finishes with these two larger overarching 
characteristics of Christian. Forgiveness and love. He says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You know, forgiveness is an incredibly powerful act. And it is something we put on, as he said. And I wonder, I wonder, is your life marked by your forgiveness of other people? Or is it marked by a lack of forgiveness? Sometimes I hear from people that they have a hard time forgiving. And they say it in, the, in terms like this. Well, I don't forget. Or, well, I'm just stubborn. And I have a hard time getting over the hurts. I hold grudges. And they say it in a way that almost is like a badge of honor. You know, tough people don't forget. Strong people are the ones that are allowed to hold grudges. But you know, there's nothing strong and there's nothing tough about it. It's actually much stronger and much tougher to forgive than it is to hold a grudge. And forgiveness is a defining part of our new life because if you're here and you're in relationship with God through Jesus, the only reason why you are is because he has forgiven you. George Herbert once said, he who cannot forgive others destroys the bridge over which he himself must pass. Horace Bushnell says, forgiveness isn't, is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Archibald Hart says, forgiveness is relinquishing my rights to hurt you back. And all of us need forgiveness. And the more you get, really get to know people, you see how this need for forgiveness is something that is pervasive in all of us. There's an old Spanish story about a father and a son who had become estranged. And the son ran away from home, but his father set out to find him. He searched for months for the boy to no avail. And finally, in a last-ditch effort, he was desperate to find his son. The father took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad said this. He said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And on Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up. All of them looking for forgiveness for the love of their fathers. Forgiveness is an incredibly powerful, defining part of the Christian life, of the new self. And he says in verse 14 that above all of these things, all of these are important, but above all of them, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. A new person can't function in a new Christian life unless God becomes one who loves and forgives them and therefore they love and forgive other people. Love is the default disposition and action of a Christian. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Instead, act as if you did. 
And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. To put on love as a disposition and a defining action. We could talk at length about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Suffice it to say, we know that it doesn't mean the romantic, warm, fuzzy feeling that we're talking about. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is something we do to other people. In his book, Mere Christianity, excuse me, in in a story from D.L. Moody, Moody once told about a church in which love was the defining feature, and in contrast to other churches in the area. Moody said in Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended a Sunday school class that I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school class, even though it meant that he had to walk some miles to get there. And one of his little friends reminded him, you know, there are a number of churches between here and there that you could go to. And they're just as good as the church that you are going to all the way on the other side of town. And the little boy replied, no, they are just as good for some people. But I want to go over there. Why? The little girl asked. Because they love a fella over there, was the response. Because they love a fella over there. If we could help the world to understand that we loved them, there'd be fewer empty churches. There'd be a smaller proportion of the population who never darkened the door of a church. And if you let love, if you let love replace duty in your relationships, our church will grow healthier. Your relationships will become way more meaningful. And a world around us will hear, learn, and experience the gospel of Jesus in a way that they have not before. Let me conclude by saying very simply, put off and put on. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what a new life looks like. Not a set of rules and regulations, but a new way of living. Because I want desperately, and I know many of you do too, I want to be a certain type of person. And it's directly related to the person that I'm most deeply connected to. His name is Jesus. The message of today's text is this. Let your actions reflect your new life and your new citizenship. This morning, I want to close our service in a little different way than we have in the last couple weeks. Because when you get to a text like this where there are lists, the application becomes very self-evident, doesn't it? You read through them or you hear them talked about and you can quickly say, well, that applies to me. And, well, maybe not that one so much and this one definitely so. 
But to hear them and acknowledge them is very different than making a choice to actually put something off and put something on. So in response to the scriptures this morning, what we're gonna do over the next couple of minutes as we close is Pastor Chris is gonna play and it is time for us to do spiritual business with God. If you see some of the things in this list that define who you used to be and you're not that way anymore, oh, you should be so encouraged. Praise God that you have a new life and a new self. If you see some of the things in this list of putting things off that you're still struggling with, well, it's time. It's time for you to say, I'm going to put those things off. I'm going to put to death some of these things that continue to plague me. And today I'm going to make a choice to do that. And maybe you have put to death or put away some of these sexual sins or the relational sins, but you haven't put anything on intentionally in its place. In the next couple of minutes, in the quietness of your heart, and I'll even ask you to close your eyes if that's helpful to you so you're not distracted. In a moment of self-analysis, what are the things that you need to put off? And what are the things that you need to put on? And listen as I read them for you slowly. And ask God to help you. Put to death. sexual immorality. Impurity. Lustful passion. Put to death evil desire. covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. Put away anger, wrath, malice, and slander. seen talk from your mouth. Do not lie to each other. Put on then because you are God's chosen and holy and beloved people through your faith in Christ. Put on compassionate hearts on kindness, put on humility and meekness, be patient and bear with Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you.
above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Heavenly Father, It is hard for us to participate in the old, in the life change that you expect us to participate in. And I thank you and I praise you that you have freed us from slavery to the sins of the past. That we're no longer the same person that we were. That we are now free to actually grow in you. And that you do that work in us. Thank you that you call us beloved though we don't deserve it. God, I pray that you would help us to cast aside the things that have marked a relationship of the past. Help us to cast aside sexual sins that are destructive. Help us to be a people who are defined by love. God, let forgiveness and forgiving other people be a marker point in my life. We need you in these things. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we depart this morning, I want to remind you that direction is good food and bad football. But as you go, but as you go, in all seriousness, you know, God institutes change in our life, and as we talked about, he expects us to participate in that change. And I want to read for you a benediction. A benediction very simply means good words. These are good words from the book of Jude, verse 24. So please stand with me and hear this benediction from the scriptures. That's about you, and it's about me, and it's about God and his son Jesus, it says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, that's the good news of the gospel, to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you at Fall Fest.